Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Happy Halloween! Today, host David Bell speaks with Dr. Nicole D. Price, CEO of Lively Paradox, about the book My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Menachem. Throughout their discussion, they utilize the book to discuss the importance of educating our community on the racial trauma that every American should work to heal. When racism gets internalized and passed down over generations within a particular group, it can start to look like culture. Therapists call this a traumatic retention. It's time to let go of that trauma. David and Nicole will talk about healing strategies. How can we get better? Stay tuned. We want to thank everyone who supported KKFI during our fall fund drive. Because of you, on Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. So 20 years ago, when I dipped my big toe into Orthodox Judaism for a few minutes, I used to lead off afternoon prayers with this prayer. And while I didn't know the meaning of the words at first, I recall after doing it for a while, kind of the relaxing, joyful feeling that I felt saying these words as I stood in prayer. I left Orthodox Judaism as quickly as I entered it, but fast forward 20 years. So long after that memory had been somewhat forgotten, I'm talking to Dr. Nicole Price, who's our guest today, and she tells me I have to read a book. It's called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. But she says I have to do the exercises. And the book focuses primarily, although other aspects, on trauma in the black community, the white community, and the police community. So eventually I get around to doing the exercises, and we'll talk about that process. But one of the exercises involves humming, whatever tune you want. So I'm sitting in my car, driving back from somewhere in northern Missouri, and I start humming, a tune that I made up on the fly right there. And I experience the same feeling, the same relaxing, joyful feeling that I felt 20 years ago when I said the ashray regularly. And at that moment, a light bulb went off. What if prayer, swaying back and forth, chanting, and other similar methods of worship were in part an attempt to release trauma, to ground oneself? Religion, at least my religion, had lost a significant amount of its meaning. And all of a sudden, that same religion may take on new life. Mr. Menachem had opened a door for me. And so today, I, today I want to talk about Mr. Menachem's book, how it addresses trauma in the context of the black, white, and law enforcement communities, and then how we can all learn from the book. And to do so, I welcome Dr. Nicole Price, a friend and mentor to the show. Dr. Price, thank you for being here. I appreciate you inviting me. It's nice to be chosen. Thank you. You know, I first want to talk about talking about trauma. And, and what I meant is I, I do remember, Dr. Price, when you and I first met and you helped me through kind of some understanding. I started to see things. My eyes open to some things in society. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute. I see it now. I'm white. You're black. Black people experienced 400 years of trauma. Now let's talk about your trauma. Go ahead. <laughs> like I just kind of like, I'm like, hey, like I, like I found something new and I got to share it with everybody. And so I'm going to come to you, Dr. Price. I'm going to say, all right, I see what your trauma is. Now let's talk about your trauma. But that's a problem, right? 
And I wonder if we could start off with there and maybe what that problem is when someone like myself comes to you at first like that, almost in this intellectual exercise. Yeah, I I was completely grateful that we had met each other because I know for sure that we both have grown as a result of our relationship. And you and I have very different lived experiences. And what I found was that oftentimes when we would talk, I would try to intellectually help you understand what I understood through experience. Mm. And I just want everyone to know that I do this too. I, um, you know, I'm an engineer, just like you're a lawyer. We've got a lot in, in common in that way. And our jobs are to be objective, to be reasonable, to be logical, to interrogate what's in front of us, to ask a bunch of questions about it. And when people have experienced small doses of trauma, and that's the word, it's hard for me to say. I don't know if you noticed, I I paused Mm. when I got ready to say it. But Resma has named it appropriately. The images that we see in media, the messages we receive while watching the news, subtle acts of racial terror that all people have experienced if they're observing And what that does to the body over time is a feeling. It's a holding, if you haven't done anything about it, that is hard to explain to someone intellectually. And so you and I would get into these intellectual conversations and inevitably you would always say, well, what about? But isn't that the same as? And you know this, and so I don't I don't think this is new to you. We've talked about it. There would be times when I'd just be exhausted trying to help you understand um, again what was an experience through intellect. And so when someone comes to you and and wants to get into the subject, particularly of trauma as you may have experienced it, your family may have experienced it, your ancestors may have experienced it, that in and of itself could bring trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Because I I feel like as I look back on it now, someone embarrassed and I appreciate your grace and mercy in that, that, that I was kind of like a, a a bull in a China shop. I'm kind of rummaging around. I'm trying to intellectually understand something that's very personal to you, very painful to you. And I didn't see that at first. And I'm wondering, is that, is that a unique experience with me or is that something in your work or throughout your life that you experience pretty often? I believe it is something consistent for people who have grown up in the United States. Um, I say it's more prevalent with people who have white bodies using uh, Resma Menachem's word and also more prevalent with people who are adjacent to or closer to whiteness in terms of what their skin looks like. And it always it what it tends to be is. If there are 10 things you said that I agree with, but two that I'm like, I don't know. I haven't experienced that. Or isn't that just the common experience? It is common for people to focus on the two and to Hmm. say, well, what about, and I have an example that is not racial. And so typically people can get their heads around it. My name is Nicole spell N I C O L E. And Let's say there's someone with a name that is not as common in U.S. vernacular. 
And let's say that person is trying to explain how frustrating it is to over and over and over again have to spell their name, try to get someone to figure out how to say their name correctly. Well, what that person knows for sure is that we know how to say George Stephanopoulos. We know how to spell it correctly in the media. We never get it wrong. So we should be able to spell their name and get it correct. And let's say I was giving that person an award and I managed to spell it incorrectly. And then when they brought it to me and they let's say they were upset about it. The cognitive or the intellectual exercise that most people get into is, well, you know, my name's Nicole. Sometimes people spell it with an H. They don't mean it. Right. And it's like, well, yes, sometimes people do spell my name with an H. And that's probably happened maybe two dozen times in my entire life. I am not experiencing it every day, all day. And when someone's trying to celebrate you, the least they could do is get your name right. And I've heard people talk about their life's body of work and people can't say their name right. Um, They're given a eulogy at a funeral and someone can't say their name right. And it's a level of disrespect that if you have to deal with it over and over and over again, chips away at the body is what I've learned through this somatic therapy Mm -hmm. work. Well, and so, you know, we're talking really about intellectualizing and I know you know, my entire, not career, but certainly, well, most of the career is all about intellectualizing, right? It's, but at the same time, I guess sometimes I certainly feel for a client. I certainly feel in it. And I was thinking about the, when I get, uh, I get asked to fill in at law school, a law, local law school here to teach uh, about trial. And I'm standing up in front of these law students that have never been to trial, trying to explain something to them. And I finally just say, you know, teaching trial is kind of like teaching about sex. I can, tell you all about it, but until you actually do it, you're not really going to really get what I'm talking about. And and I wonder if there's some relationship between that and what we're talking about here, this idea that my desire or constant focused intellectualize your experience or someone else's experience versus a willingness to kind of go farther and, and, and experience that in some way. Which is why... I am so excited about the practices in the book. Mm -hmm. And you remember I told you, I said, you don't even need to read it because reading it makes it an intellectual exercise. Doing the practices then is you going to trial and experiencing it and and feeling it. And what I must say is that I bought this book because someone told me to buy it. Right. And it's sat in my pile because I'm a first in, first out kind of person. What, what, what book came to my house first? I need to read it before I go to the next one. So it was like 16 down in the pile. And it was my therapist who brought it back up to me when my body was starting to exhibit the, the trauma coming out in our bodies. And, um, and so she said, I'm just going to mention it to you once more for you to take a look at this. And I think for me, what I was resistant to was that I didn't want to spend more time talking about racialized trauma. I, I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I didn't want to go through that exercise. I spent enough of my time doing that as part of my work, but I will share that. And you tell me what you think. I believe that it's releasing all kinds of trauma from my body to do these exercises, not even just the ones that happen to be racial. Oh, I, I absolutely. I agree. And, and it was when I was uh, humming that tune in the car, I was driving back from a county in North Missouri and, and I was listening to this book on tape preparing for an interview with you because I promised you that this time 
I would do the exercises. And when that somatic experience, I think is the term that we're using, uh, occurred and it brought me back to that thing 20 years ago, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Dr. Price was right. <laughs> and I had to tell you about it, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, but, but until that time, I was sitting there reading the book and I'd come to these exercises in the, at the end of each chapter and I'd do it at home at night before I go to bed. And I'm like, damn it, I'm not going to get up out of bed and sit there for 15 minutes and do the exercise. <laughs> I'd skip over it. And then it became, it wasn't very meaningful to me. But, but I do, but, but going further on that, I, I, and going to what you're saying, I think the, the ability to empathize, and we'll talk about that. I know you've got a book coming out next year on empathy. Mm-hmm. It, it is difficult in that how do I fully experience your bodily experience mm-hmm. or whatever you're experiencing? And what he gets to, which I really thought was wonderful, is is that you focus on your own trauma. That's and right. I think through that, you then understand someone else's experience. Yeah, I actually was blessed to be able to be with Resma this week. Oh, wow. Um, and... I was talking to him about something and he said, it just pause like on video. He's like, pause right now. And he told me to do this thing that I had done with my hand. And when you did the exercises before I move forward, where did you feel the ex- the, the practices in your body? Where did they show up? I would say primarily in my chest yeah. and a little bit through my arms maybe yeah. and face, but primarily chest area. Mine was my chest too. Oh. And so because he's been doing body therapy, which is called somatic therapy for years, he noticed that I put my hand over my chest while I was talking to him, just naturally. And he told me to pause. And he said, put your hand back where you had it, just hover it over that spot. And he asked everyone on the call, and there were like 19 19 people on, and he said, just hold it there. And he's mirroring what I'm doing. And just that hold Mm. released that feeling of stress that I was having in my body, just him mirroring it with me. But what I thought was um, interesting is that I know I would have been resistant to this idea prior to experiencing it. And he mentions on also on the call that there was a person who said, I read your book over the weekend and he said, there's absolutely no way you there's can get no way, anything right. out of it. And I was grateful that you were honest with me. And you were like, yeah, I'm just skipping the exercises. And I'm like, David, you're going to miss it. Right. You're going to miss the most important part of this if you skip the practices. And um, uh, just for the listeners, the first half of the book are practices to actually help you identify where you feel trauma in your body because most of us are used to just pushing past it. But then the second half of the book, all of the practices are dedicated to being able to settle the body. Right. And the premise is pretty simple, right? That a settled body is better in terms of how it interacts with other people. How could we argue against that idea? Right. We can. And I think people will know this that are listening, that when you're around someone who's settled or appears relaxed, that relaxes you. That mm-hmm. gives you a sense of safety and comfort. Yeah. And he very clearly states that trauma is contagious and so is the settled body. Mm. So as more and more of us, and it's it's interesting, I'm not sure I completely understand this part just yet. But he calls somatic therapy different from mindfulness. Right. 
And some of the exercises are exactly the same because you practice mindfulness. So mm-hmm. you know that some of the exercises are exactly the same, like a body scan, for example. Right. You regularly do a body scan in mindfulness. But then some of the solutions, wringing of your hands, humming together, as you uh, mentioned, clapping with other bodies. It was just fascinating to me that um, things that are so simple if we do them, actually have the ability to work. Well, and, and when, you, when you said it just like that, you know, my mind goes to my limited experience with the black church. Mm-hmm. And it's singing, it's humming, it's clapping, it's swaying. And then I was thinking, well, of course, where would you go to learn how to deal with trauma, to build up resilience and strength in the, in the face of overwhelming pain? It would be the black community yeah. and the black church. And the exercises he talks about mirror that. Now, in Judaism, as an example... You have it's. I, I can tell you the singing's not as good, but uh, but but you have the uh, you have the humming. You have you have some singing, but repetition of of sounds. It certainly to me remind uh, reminded me it went back uh, twenty years. But you have the swaying. You have repetition, and so there's certain aspects there that I saw common uh, with with my limited uh, experience with the Black Church, but also with what Resma was saying. Yeah, I did ask him about that this mm-hmm. week. I said, "Is it?" Um intentional that some of the body settling exercises are things that used to occur completely in traditional black church. Uh Um, And he said, yes. And it's still, it's not religion either though. And he wanted to make sure that I understood that distinction, but to be able to survive hundreds of years. And in case of white bodies, thousands of years of trauma, um, you will develop some coping strategies if you are to make it. And so one thing that is just on my heart to try to get us to do collectively as a society, we have to first do it, you know, by ourselves. And then you have to do it within the communities where you operate. And I have to do it in the communities where I operate. Then we can possibly come together. But suicide rates being as high as they are, um, you're a criminal defense attorney. Right. You see some of the way people blow their trauma through other people yeah. when they're not settled. It is to our benefit to heal our own bodies and not expect people to tiptoe around our traumas. And it reminds me of a, a book. I think it was Michael Singer uh, wrote called The Untethered Soul, where he uses this analogy that if, let's say I have a thorn in my side. And it starts to get infected and hurt. Instead of taking it out, what we're more used to doing is to bandaging it. And then when we put the bandage over it, now we don't want anybody to touch it. You just stay away from this spot. And it's not a novel idea to pull the thorn out and do the healing practices. And so what uh, Resma calls it is, do you want clean pain or dirty pain? It's going to hurt to pull the thorn out. It's going to require something of you to do the clean pain exercises. And we'll talk about that. You know, I wanted to go back to this, the phrase you use, which, which resume is, which was blowing the, the trauma through another body. And, and I don't want our listeners to get confused with the term trauma and think, well, I haven't experienced trauma or whatever it may be. I want you to, I'm going to give you a real world example that just happened like two weeks ago at my work. I had a big crunch time sentencing and a bunch of other stuff. And I got stressed, really stressed. And uh, to the point where I got maybe hyper-focused on some things. And 
blew up at someone at my office. Mm-hmm. Now, I did it in a way through an email or something, and it wasn't like bad words or anything, but it was done in a way that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And it caused pain mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And 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 I view that as a way in which I – and I'm, I was aware of it. I'm aware of it. I blew trauma through the body of somebody else. Mm-hmm. And just that one little incident, and I can look back and see it, but I can only imagine what he talks about in the book about how trauma experienced – particularly by, by white people throughout centuries, mm-hmm. um, how that trauma is blown through others, mm-hmm. particularly black bodies. I found yeah. it to be fascinating. Yeah, he says, if it's hysterical, it's historical. Mm. I, I loved that quote because it's it was really helpful to me. Um, I was just talking with a friend last week, and um, he has a flight response. That's how he doesn't tend to fight or, or blow up at other people, mm-hmm. but he'll go and isolate and I said, you might just consider trying to figure out how to heal that trauma because it's not a healthy kind of isolation. So right. let me just be clear. And he said, you think I'm traumatized? I said, I don't know. But what I do know is that maybe your mother was hmm. or maybe your grandmother was or maybe your great, great grandmother was. And we hold that generational imprint in our bodies. And I had no knowledge of that before Resma had talked about it in this book. And chapter three, you know, I told you in chapter three was one of my favorite practices where we um, ancestors. where we try to imagine an ancestor. And I'm on my way to get some makeup done for a keynote I have to do, have to do and uh-huh. the makeup artist is running behind. And that's the chapter I'm on. So I'm like, well, she's 15 minutes late. That exercise, that practice takes 10 minutes. So I'm say I'm going to sit in my car and do it. So I'm sitting uh-huh. on the Truce Corridor at 31st Street in my car, and I'm going to sit for 10 minutes. And I, I intellectually do not think this is going to happen. I do not believe that right. I'm going to have anyone come to me. And what was most amazing is that two people came to me very, very vividly. One was a little girl, a little black girl playing actually in a cotton field with a snake like but if she was clearly joyous she was not upset or anything and the other was a man if i had to guess how old he was he was in his uh, late 70s early 80s um skin weathered hair white face stoic and just strength is what i felt and I remember being moved to tears because what that represents for me is that despite everything, despite all of it, I come from a lineage of people who still manage to be human when everything around them said otherwise. And there was a renewed confidence I had in my, in my ancestor experience. And so I, you know, I just think, People don't even need to believe in this idea. Right. But what if it could be good for the greater society for us each to try these practices? Well, and I think, and, and again, ladies and gentlemen, as you know, hopefully, and I know Dr. Price and I are talking a lot about this, is I want to intellectualize everything. If I don't understand it, I don't believe it. And, you know, I don't necessarily understand this, although I did the exercises and I felt something. That's what I can tell you for sure. You know, going back to the ancestors, when I tried that exercise, I viewed uh, 
you know, I, I would say something akin to like a fiddler on the roof uh, uh, scene without the singing part in a, in, a, in a field or nearby a field or whatever. And that brought me back to, and then a, there was a man on a ship coming over and my ancestors came over. Maybe it was my great grandfather, I think was the first or great grandmother were the first people to come to the United States. But I remember my grandmother who was born here, but who had heard stories, who spoke Yiddish, who had heard stories about the problems that happened in Russia and Poland. And after I got my law degree, she said to me, she goes, David, she goes, at least they can't take that from you. And I remember like, I was thinking, I didn't even say anything at the time. And I was like, well, who's she talking about? They, right. You know I mean, like what, what's she saying? They talking about, I mean, who's the, they going to come take it from me. But now as I look back on it, I could see that that was definitely uh, part of that. We're, uh, you know, we're going to get into, I do want to talk about the kind of the understanding of it for sure, because I think that's going to help uh, us understand uh, a little bit about how this works internally. But for now, we're talking to Dr. Nicole Price. We're going to talk about a little bit more about uh, Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. And when we come back, we'll explore more of the intellectual side that helps me at least get to more of the feeling side. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Support for KKFI provided by ACLU Kansas. The November 8th election is coming soon for Kansas voters. In-person early voting may be open now in your county. If you experience any difficulties voting by mail, early in person, or at the polls on election day, you can get nonpartisan assistance from the Election Protection Hotline at 1-866-681-8683. For more information, visit aclukansas.org forward slash election protection 2022. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Now the calendar for the week of October 31st. Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense is an active group of mothers and others who advocate for common sense about guns. To see their events, go to momsdemandaction.org. To identify Gun Sense candidates for public office, go to gunsensevoter.org. Tuesday, November 1st, 7 p.m., Clean Slate Initiative Town Hall, Everyone Deserves a Second Chance, is at All Souls UU Church, 4501 Walnut, Kansas City, Missouri. Hashtag StandUpKC, hashtag Clean Slate, hashtag Automatic Expungement. Hashtag Clean Slate Initiative. Join Empower Missouri and other Clean Slate campaign leaders for our presentation and panel discussion. Kansas City advocates will share their expertise and experience regarding the many barriers imposed by a criminal record and the need for automatic record sealing. More info at empowermissouri.org. Wednesday, November 2nd, 10 a.m., Kansas Faith Plus Democracy Table Meeting will meet virtually. For more information, go to moresquare.org. Wednesday, November 2nd, 10 a.m., Good Morning Indian Country is an online event presented by the Lawrence Art Center in partnership with the University of Kansas School of Journalism. This morning news and talk show features Indian Country's finest. Find it on Facebook Live. 
Thursday, November 3rd, 6 p.m., Amendment 4 Town Hall, a conversation on state overreach and keeping it local, is at the Bruce R. Watkins Cultural Heritage Center and State Museum, 2700 Blue Parkway, Kansas City, Missouri. Open to the public. See you there and please bring friends. Friday, November 4th at noon, Empower Missouri's Friday Forum, The Case for Reparations, is a virtual event. As our communities work to address disproportionate racial outcomes today, we must look back at intentional race-based policies that drive those outcomes. Will we make targeted investment in black households through reparations? What do calls for reparations look like in 2022? How would they operate and would it work? More info at empowermissouri.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at Lawrence Progressive Calendar blogspot.com. That's updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We want to thank our engineer today, Stan Thomas. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page, as well as the Jaws of Justice Radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. We now return to our program. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Price, and we're talking about My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem, a really wonderful book. And I certainly think, as we talked about in the first half hour, there is a mindfulness aspect to it, and I would call that the first part of the book. You have to be aware of your body. You certainly have to be aware of your thoughts, what's going on. That's part of it. But... To me now, as I look back, that's a small part of it. It's certainly much more than that. And the part we're talking about is more the somatic part. And the now that you understand there may be trauma, you may have uh, anxiety there, how is that released? And, of course, we go back and look at various exercises that groups of people have had, have dealt with over you know centuries, particularly in communities that have dealt with trauma and how they've handled it. And we see, we talked about in the first half hour, the black church, clapping, uh, singing, swaying. We talked about similar movements actually in Jewish worship as well. And in this half hour, I want to talk, Dr. Price, with you about just a little bit about the intellectual side. And I said, you know, you got to, you can't intellectualize the whole thing, right? Even though that's my desire to, but so now I've experienced it. Now I want to understand it. And that's just, that's, that's always going to be me, I think. Um, and I know he talks about the lizard brain, the soul nerve, which I think is the vagus nerve, and the cortex. And I'm wondering, I, I, I'm looking at a quote here. It says, our lizard brain scans all of this input and responds in a fraction of a second by either letting something enter into the cortex or rejecting it and inciting a fight, flee, or freeze response. This mechanism allows our lizard brain to override our thinking brain whenever it senses real or imagined danger. It blocks any information from reaching our thinking brain until after it has sent a message to fight, flee, or freeze. What could you help us through that, Dr. Price, in terms of language that maybe we all can better understand? Yeah. So intellectually, what we um, call this is the amygdala in the brain. That's the part of the brain that kept us safe. It's the that's the part of the brain that is not thinking. It is the part of the brain that when you hear rustling in a bush outside of a cave that makes you go um, food or something that's going to kill me. And when we have had trauma occur, 
the brain leaves the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, and the blood goes to the amygdala, which is at the back base of the brain. We know that scientifically. And what Dr. Resma, I always want to call him Dr. Resma because I feel like his work is um, doctoral level research. What Resma has helped us to uncover is it is highly likely that most people understand why black bodies would have experienced trauma. What's less obvious is what has happened to people who are descendants of the folks who watched as this trauma was being inflicted mm. and it was happening by their uncle, their preacher, their teacher, their librarian. And one of the exercises is to look at an image of some black men being hanged. Mm. And then you think as the reader that he's going to ask you what's going on in black bodies who have experienced that, but he doesn't. He directs your attention to the children in the in the crowd who are watching people they love celebrate this type of cultural terror. And what does that mean over generation after generation after generation? And he says, do you think the white bodies were settled in those children? Do you think they were comforted? And my thinking goes to absolutely not. Sure. And so then what does that mean if we don't process that trauma and we continue to procreate and have children? And it is how our unconscious bias is currently fueled. It is the thing that makes you see someone and maybe clutch your purse or maybe scoot over in an elevator or lock your car door. And then as you extrapolate that out to other things that happen in the world, uh, we have a, a current example. We understand and know right now that what's happening with fentanyl and opioids is a, is a drug problem that is medical in nature that we need to fix, which means intellectually, we understand the science of medicine. But if you just go back 30 years, right. when the drug was crack cocaine, we acted as if cognitively we did not know that. And so humans haven't changed drastically in 30 years. What is more true is that in our bodies, we see black bodies as less. Um, we see white bodies as greater. And if with that historical view, then it informs how we do things intellectually. Well, and one of the things I wanted to bring up from the the book that goes to what you're saying, uh, it says, quote, in the aftermath of a highly stressful or traumatic situation, our soul nerve and lizard brain may embed a reflexive trauma response in our bodies. This happens at lightning speed. And so when you're talking about the grabbing of the purse or the locking of the door or some facial expression, it it's so embedded that you may not even know you're doing it. And that's the unconscious nature of it. And I think one of the fascinating things I find about this book is that you become, at least the, 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 the hope is, doing the exercises, but also thinking more about it, that you start to become aware of these things. Right. 
And as you are aware in your cognitive brain, if you're doing the practices, then you'll settle the body. Mm. You'll help to overcome some of these reflexive responses that we have uh, by doing the clean pain work. There's a quote uh, that he has in the book um, where he says, in some cases, when a white body simply experiences discomfort, its lizard brain may interpret this as a lack of safety and react with violence. Now, here's why that's important for the work that I do. And for the work I do, I'm just trying to get organizations to create more inclusive spaces where everyone feels like they belong. Intellectually, we know that drives greater quality, greater service, fewer errors, more revenue. However, if you're going to learn something that's different from your lived experiences, that's going to cause discomfort. And if discomfort means unsafe to your body. Oh, interesting. Yeah. How does this work get done? And so what we start to see is as we start to make progress around being more inclusive, creating spaces where more people feel like they belong, there's this huge backlash that says, what about me? I'm unsafe. We got to stop doing this. You know, um, this is not good for us collectively. And this singular resource for me has helped to clarify why some of that happens, that it's not always conscious. It's historical. It's historical. The, hy- the hysteria I see sometimes when people are learning new concepts is a historical trauma coming through. And that and that's interesting because I, and, and just to go back from that quote is, is very much a, if you are, coming up on something new or something different or whatever it may be and you experience experience anxiety or uncertainty if you automatically go through intergenerational trauma whatever it may be if you automatically go to there's a threat there that's going to take you to a different place in terms of your reaction to it but yet there we have an alternative to that and that is i think what you're talking about is learning to process it pulling the thorn out, if you will, and experiencing what's going on and recognizing what's going on, Mm -hmm. that that could lead to perhaps some form of healing. Yeah. Um, What I I also thought was fascinating, he didn't have many uh, images in the book. And so when I I see an author who doesn't have many images and then they put Mm -hmm. one in, I'm like, oh, let me pay attention to that one. He specifically lays out how trauma compounds. And I'm not sure, are you familiar with uh, adverse childhood uh, experiences or aces mm-hmm. that, that I well through you the test or yeah or the, a little yeah bit. so I, I invite people to do the test and it was interesting when I tried to do this uh, reading with um, with some of my friends I was actually the only one in the group who had had a significant amount of adverse childhood experiences wow. and so he lays out that historical trauma is like before we've ever even been conceived and that's the foundation through which all other trauma sits on. And then intergenerational trauma, what my my parent may have experienced. You were telling me about a client who um, had committed a horrible crime, but you had a, a picture of his mother smoking a crack pipe in 1985, like while she was pregnant with him. Right. And so that's kind of intergenerational trauma being passed on. And I think most people can get their head around that one. And then there's the adverse childhood experiences. And then there's social, emotional, cognitive impairments. And then high-risk behaviors, disease, which all of these things ultimately can lead to early death. But what I didn't know when we're talking about trying to understand this, 
I didn't understand that something that happened 500 years ago mm-hmm. could still be held in my body. And that's true for all of us. And, and that was a very interesting, important learning for me. Well, and he, and he talks in the book, Resmond talks in the book about how, about how, for the most part, individuals that are considered white today descended from individuals uh, many generations ago that were subject to extreme trauma. They were leaving something. They were fleeing something. They were not necessarily rich oligarchs who were like, oh, let me just leave my comfortable life here, you know, in Europe. Um, and yeah, it, which makes it less obvious how trauma is showing up in white bodies. Well, and, and it is, particularly if we don't want to be aware of it. And, and what I found fascinating about, about this, of course, is we're talking about race here. We're talking about white, black. There's also, he also speaks to police officers or police bodies. But this exercise is, as you mentioned before, applicable to anything in our life. Mm-hmm. And so we're almost, you know, I, I, it, we're learning more about ourselves. I'm learning more about myself based upon the black experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I feel slightly guilty about that in a way. A little, I'm just, I just do like, wait a minute. Now I'm, you know, to the extent the country was built significantly on the, the bodies of, of black men and women and that pain. And now I'm getting to benefit from that in a certain mm-hmm. way and learn from it. That's, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe doc helped me deal with that. Uh. Yeah. So one thing I also, well, that I think if you talk about that learning, I'll talk about my learning and my natural inclination to want to soothe the white body. Right. He talked about that he too. Does. And that that's also a trauma response. And so what, what I've learned is that yes, there are absolutely times to be able to soothe people. And then there are other times where people need to sit in the discomfort and deal with it on their own. And so here's what I think is is important, um, because I had I actually also had a problem with this idea or concept of police bodies. But then when you think about what police are uniquely doing in their roles, they are experiencing trauma every day. Sure. And if they are not settled in their bodies, what does that mean for my black body? Right? right. It's a, it's going to be a level of un, a lack of safety. There's something that you said that I'm sure someone listening is going to be uncomfortable about, no matter how much evidence we have that it's true. And that is, there are benefits that you have today purely because your skin is white that are based on a concept that was created in 1681. And guilt, I think, is what people experience because, David, how old are you? 50. You're learning this at 50. Right. I know. Right. It's unsettling. I just recently had an, an identity situation happen mm-hmm. to me personally, and I learned it at, you know, 45. It's unsettling. What we can do for our next generation of citizens is to help them understand it earlier, where it's just a part of who we are, that there's trauma that we have to um, heal and that we have to do it collectively in our own communities before we try to get together with other people and do it as shared work. I can't be concerned about myself. As you heal, I've got to heal. And then at some point, we got to get to a place where we can do it together. And that's how I believe the guilt part gets handled, that we educate that we start practicing earlier, that we, I believe we are only as sick as our secrets. Mm. And when we keep these things secret, like how is it I'm just now learning about 
racialized trauma in the body. Both of us, almost 50, just learning this. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if we learned how to settle our bodies in kindergarten? Oh, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I just, it just made me realize you talked about the soothing, and he does talk about that in the book. And, and what we just did here, and I did it inadvertently in inadvertently. front of everybody. Yes. <laughs> I just did not, <laughs> you did. Oh, no. But that's okay. I, I, I just, felt it in my chest, and right. I'm just like, I'm okay. I, I, I said I feel guilty that I'm, I'm, I'm benefiting off the pain and the bike experience now that learning more about myself. And I, then I looked out to you, and I said, Doc, soothe me. Yes. Essentially what I just did. Yes, <laughs> so. that's, that, and that's exactly right. And cognitively, I knew now I know what that is. And I resisted the urge to say, David, it's okay. Right. You don't need to feel guilt or shame. Like, I resisted that urge. Right. You're fine. I'm fine. We're both sitting in chairs in an office right. <laughs> in an office building. We're fine. And the discomfort is part of what's necessary. And we can shift this for our future generations that are coming after us by settling our bodies. And I, I just invite more people to do the practices so that we can have more settled bodies in the world. And I don't think anybody could argue against the benefit of having more settled bodies in the world. I agree. And, and even it's, again, we, we're talking about this in the context of race, but, but I think this applies. I, in my, the example I had in my office where I blew the trauma or blew my anxiety or threw anger through other individuals here had nothing to do with race. But yet the same concepts that we're talking about here would apply. I want to briefly read a definition of clean pain and then dirty pain. And uh, Resma says, in my therapy office, I tell clients there are two kinds of pain, clean pain and dirty pain. Clean pain is pain that mends and can build your capacity for growth. It's the pain you experience when you know exactly uh, what you need to say or do, when you really, really don't want to say or do it, and when you do it anyway. It's also the pain you experience when you have no idea what to do, when you're scared or worried about what might happen, and when you step forward into the unknown anyway with honesty and vulnerability. And then dirty pain is the pain of avoidance, blame, and denial. You know, as to the clean pain, even when I just realized what I had done a few minutes ago live, or at least as we're talking, uh, the, the, the initial uh, feeling or desire is to flee that, mm-hmm. to get away from that anxiety or discomfort, or to maybe just freeze, whatever it may be. But what he's suggesting, and I think what you're talking about, doctor, is to to sit there with it, mm-hmm. appreciate it, mm-hmm. be aware of where it is, and understand it kind of in the present moment, yeah. because that will then, in my that understanding, that will allow a, perhaps a growth, if you will, for me. And I'm just curious, what feels better in the body? Acknowledging it and calling it out, and us laughing about it together, or trying to deny what would what happened? Right, and I think in, you're right, and and there's a certain well, there's a certain tension in the kind of oh, there it is. But once it's acknowledged and talked about and that vulnerability is, is there and, and it's let out, there is certain, well, there's a settled feeling. Mm-hmm. Whereas if uh, the dirty pain and me running from it and saying, well, why are you trying to make me feel guilty and going on? What about this? And what about that? That to me, as I think about it, is running away from the pain or running yeah. away from the anxiety. And of course, that just winds up causing more pain right. down the road for me, for my family, mm-hmm. potentially, and particularly for others. That we deal with. Yeah. When, when people, one of the, the common ways of avoidance I hear people use is, you know, well, I grew up in uh, California or New York or my family's world is traveled or, you know, we do mission assignments here or there. My, my granddaughter is biracial or, you know, I dated a, a Hispanic person in college. People are trying to say, 
I'm a good person. That's ultimately what they're trying to say. And if there's anything I am trying to do with the Spark the Heart book that's coming out in April is to get people to instead recognize the courage is feeling fear, mm-hmm. settling the body, and doing it anyway. I cannot have I can't think of anything that's worth doing where there's not going to be some level of discomfort. Sure. And if discomfort is associated with unsafe, you see the problem here. We were in a negative cycle of where we're not making progress. And so all of the work we're trying to do around creating more inclusive spaces, healing racial uh, trauma and terror requires this foundation of empathy that is not there that says, hey, I, I understand my part empathy to the self. I understand my part in this. And so therefore I'm going to do something different, even if it makes me a little uncomfortable. And these practices actually, I think, help you to determine when you really are unsafe or when your brain is, your body is trying to trick you into thinking you're unsafe. You know, and going back to this talk about empathy, which I think is certainly at the forefront now of at least what I'm thinking about and and looking into, it's for me, a question of how is it that I experience or understand your pain or or what you've been through potentially? And the best I think I can do is, as I'm thinking through this is I have to have experienced it myself to a certain extent. And again, what Resmus talks about in this book is we've all suffered from trauma in some way. Either it's been intergenerational trauma, it's something we've experienced throughout our lives, all of us have. And the ability to tune into that, um, the ability to tune in that and understand that makes us more likely to be able to then understand someone else's trauma and someone else's pain. And I, I think, I guess, as, I, as I'm thinking through that, to me, that's empathy. That, is it? Is that that I mean? is the definition of empathy at its core. You know, you'll find the academics who'll say, oh, right. there are five different types and they mean different things. And, and that while that's true. At the core level, it is still under trying to understand the experiences of another. And the best you can do is through your own lens. It is impossible for me to step into your shoes and walk around in your life as you. Um, but I can get really close to it by resonating with the same experiences that you've had that kind of that I've had similar feelings or emotions or experiences with. And it is impossible to be in the water of living in the United States and to lull ourselves into thinking that we have not gotten wet. Hmm. There isn't a single institution in the United States of America that does not have separation based on race by which positive outcomes are almost always white and negative outcomes are almost always black people at the bottom. You can predict based on the industry what the data is going to tell you. That does not have to be true for our future generations. And we, if not us, then who? Let us start with us. Well, and I I absolutely agree with that. And I think that the way to get there, one of the ways, and obviously there's, you know, I'm always looking for like the answer. And every once in a while, I think I got the answer. And then I come across another the answer. But it's usually probably a collection of all of those things. But one of the ways is, I think, is an experiencing, uh, experiencing, trauma or as you as you understanding or being aware of your own trauma and then realizing that the person over there that you have a sh- potentially a shared i don't i don't want to say it's not shared experience necessarily but you certainly have a shared uh, uh 
if that if we know other person experienced trauma to a certain degree and we've shared it, I think that would make me more likely to uh, well, that is empathy, but also more likely to treat that person the way I certainly would want to be treated. Recognizing inherent dignity in every human we encounter. Hmm. And that's it. That's, and that's it. That's, that's, <laughs> but I know we've got work to do for sure. We do. We've got work to do. You know, Dr. Price, uh, I want to thank you very much for being here today. Um, we talked to you today about My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem, a wonderful book. And uh, we really appreciate you being here. And I didn't know if uh, any final words or anything that you wanted to say. You know, um, every invitation is just that, an invitation that can be accepted or declined. This world is not going to miraculously get better on its own. And we keep thinking and acting as if the problem is about these hateful people out there. Right. And I say, each of us is the enemy of equality, and the enemy is us. Mm. If we are not actively doing the practices to heal and reconcile the history of racial trauma in this country. Dr. Price, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guest of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 